Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us in this webinar in which Andrew de la Tolla will be discussing his new book, Civilization and the Making of the State in Lebanon and Syria. I'm Jinan Al-Habbal. I'm a research officer at LSE Ideas and an associate at the Middle East Center. I will be chairing this webinar, which will be an hour long. Andrew will speak for 15 minutes, then Shuridi Mulavi and Maitaha will each have around eight minutes to comment. If you would like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, not the chat box. We will then address the questions to the speakers. Please note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East. Now I would like to welcome the speakers. We're delighted to have with us Andrew de la Tolla, is a lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Leeds and a visiting research fellow at the Middle East Center. After finishing his PhD in 2018 in the LSE Department of International Relations, he was employed as an assistant professor of international relations in the Department of Political Science at the American University in Cairo. His research interests center on issues of race, gender, and sexuality in relation to statehood and state formation. His research tends to focus on issues of violence and exclusion from an international historical political sociological lens, examining the international relations of the Middle East and North Africa, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, and the Ottoman Empire. Sharidi Mulavi is a writer and scholar specializing in critical state theory, migration, and border studies, and trained with a background in international humanitarian law. She has over 15 years of academic and fieldwork experience in the Middle East, focusing on Israel-Palestine, on the topics of border practices, citizenship and statelessness, and human and minority rights, with an emphasis on the relationship between the law, violence, and power. She has taught on the above topics in liberal arts schools across the Middle East region, including at Bard College and Al-Quds University, at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies, and at the American University in Cairo. Since 2014, she has worked as a lead researcher on Israel-Palestine and field worker with Forensic Architecture, an interdisciplinary research agency based at Goldsmiths University of London. Maitaha is a lecturer in law at Goldsmiths University of London. Previously, she taught at the American University in Cairo and York University. Grounded in anti-racist socialist feminism, her research focuses on how the organization of race, class, and gender is a fundamental way of forming social hierarchies through law. She has written on international law and empire, labor movements, gender relations, care work, and social reproduction in the interwar and post-colonial Middle East. She is also interested in the areas of law and literature and law and film, exploring alternative archives, artifacts, and literary narratives. She is currently working on the legal politics of refusal in Mandate Palestine, focusing on labor and gender relations during the 1936-1939 Arab Revolt. She is also working on a project that explores the relationship between human rights and communist thought and activism in the Middle East. 
So with this introduction, we will now start with Andrew's presentation. Andrew, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you everyone for coming today. Um, I would also like to thank the Middle East Center for hosting the book launch and Nadine Al-Manasfi for organizing it, um, Dr. Jinan Al-Habal for agreeing to chair, and Dr. May Taha and Dr. Shuri De Malavi um, for taking the time to read the book and engage in discussion with me. Um, so to begin, I will discuss the three arguments in the text explaining how these arguments are being used throughout the book and what they intend to do. And then I will discuss some of the empirics um, and that will follow from the organization of the book itself. So the book it's, um, has three main arguments. First, that the modern state has been used as a civilizational standard or benchmark, one that has been produced in the 19th century and continuously reproduced in the 20th and 21st centuries. Second, because the modern state was deployed as a civilizational standard or benchmark, race and racism became embedded in the state-making process and the institutions and structures of the state itself. And third, the book argues that we should reconceptualize the modern state in the post-colonial world rather than continue to mobilize standards or benchmarks that are based off of abstracted notions of modern statehood developed from European histories of state formation. So in making these arguments, the book looks at how ideas and practices of modernity with regards to social organization and governance sought to civilize supposedly racially inferior societies. Known as the civilizing project, the attempts to implement modernization reforms and recast society into organizational units that reflected the modern state in Europe created systemic forms of alienation and social disruption at a domestic level. The book begins by bringing attention to the issue of abstraction of modern statehood in the social sciences. It focuses on how abstraction assumes universality across states to the extent that it is considered methodologically sound to engage in comparison between modern states and across global regions. This abstraction and assumption of universality as Annabel Chiano and Karen Tucker have argued, is a result of a coloniality of knowledge, a historically rooted, racially inflected practice that routinely elevates the knowledge forms and knowledge generating principles of colonizing cultures. So in relation to discussions on contemporary state building and development, what Chiano and Tucker highlight is particularly evident when we um, discuss failed, weak or strong states or even discussions of rogue states. In the first instance, these typologies are attached to hierarchies that are socially and culturally constitutive. These hierarchies are also measured by upholding the modern state in the West or in Europe as being the closest to the abstract ideal type of state and the example for other states to model themselves after. This is a continuity from knowledges and practices of imperialism and colonialism, where the social order and governance of the European modern state was considered more civilized. Um, by positioning the European modern state as evidence of European social and political advancement, the civilizing project of imperialism and colonialism was considered morally justified explaining the advancement of European civilization in comparison to the majority world, their global south, 
the social and political characteristics that facilitated the development of the modern state were attached to the racial character of white Europe. In contrast, the supposed underdevelopment of the majority world or the global south was attached to the racial character of barbaric civilizations. And this included the Ottoman Empire, China and Japan, but also had an additional hierarchy, which was the savage civilization, which included black Africa and indigenous populations in Australasia and North America. So in thinking about statehood, um, during the period of the 18th and 19th century. These racial hierarchies relied on an explicit use of scientific racism, which after World War II became replaced with the language of culture. Here viewing a society's culture as an impediment to progress and development rather than race. And in thinking about statehood, we can then trace the logic of racial hierarchies to typological hierarchies, where the weak state becomes synonymous with the barbaric civilization. Both are in need of civilizing through the civilizing project or state building. And although they use different metrics to understand weakness and understand barbarity, in both cases, the modern European state or the state in the West is viewed as the pinnacle of social and political development and both employ a methodology that is based on a particular understanding of science. This logic that underpins contemporary policy and politics then reproduces racial civilizational understandings of different modern states, particularly as entities that govern and frame and contain societies, cultures, and nations and classify them as such. But what this book does is it historicizes the foundations of these racial civilizational understandings of statehood by looking at the benchmarks or standards of civilization that were produced historically. Specifically, this book is concerned with the Syrian provinces of the Ottoman Empire and later Lebanon and Syria as they approached independence. And what I hope to have done is to disrupt the modern state as an abstract notion by reinforcing its relationship to the 19th century, its export as a civilizing tool, and what this then meant for, state, for the state as it became recognized and independent. So the book begins this exploration by thinking of the two different and separate underlying principles of governance that were evident, um, one in Europe and one in the Ottoman Empire. And these principles of governance were that of equality in Europe and tolerance in the Ottoman Empire, where equality as a developing principle of governance in Europe um, was then applied um, as something that was more civilized than other forms of governance globally. And here I want to highlight that equality as it was applied in the 19th century was limited and was largely only applied to white men who were landowners. In contrast, the principle of tolerance as it was applied in the Ottoman Empire, despite all of its faults um, in the Syrian provinces, it used the millet system at, at a domestic level, which allowed for different religious communities to engage in the management of personal law and affairs. At an imperial level, the Ottoman Empire was engaged in what is described by Karen Barkey as a hub and spoke form of governance that provided different regions and communities with different levels of political and economic autonomy. And here, 
um, looking at these dynamics, I discuss how and why governance based on the principle of tolerance was considered uncivilized um, by European administrators at the time. Um, and it was considered uncivilized because it was thought that it needed modernization and transformation. And in the first instance, um, the production of tolerance meant that the governance in the Ottoman Empire was not centralized as the European state was. Um, in the second instance, there were no guarantees of rights of citizenship as there were developing in the European state system. And third, that the Muslim communities retained more privileges than other communities in the Ottoman Empire. In addition to the supposed deficiencies in providing order and of particular worry for the European states, um, was the status of Christian communities and their position within the empire. And through this concern, the book looks at how religion was racialized, where social characteristics were linked to religious identities when they couldn't necessarily be linked to traditional uh, phenotypical aspects of race. Here, difference was demarcated between the civilized Christian populations and the fanatical Muslim populations. So the book looks at the role European powers played in the development of the Tanzimat or modernization reforms of the 19th century in the Ottoman Empire. And these reforms reinforced centralization as well as attempted to bring forward notions of equality and citizenship. Um, in, in applying these reforms, however, what we see is that um, it led to social, political, and communal alienation and provided opportunities for European powers to make particular alliances with domestic communities. So I also look at, um, in addition to looking at the Tanzimat, I also look at the division of governance of Mount Lebanon, where it was argued that two races, the Druze and the Maronites, populated the region and therefore um, there was a justification for the development of split authority. I also look at an emerging national consciousness that separated specifically Maronite Catholics from a broader regional identity. And this national consciousness um, was developed in relation to the myth that the Maronite Catholics were descendants of the Phoenicians and civilizational cousins to the Roman Catholics in France. This then gave way to a larger political project that would later separate Lebanon from Syria. In chapter five, the book explores the relationship between territory identity and governance as a part of creating civilized boundaries. Here it looks at the split authority in Mount Lebanon again, as well as the land code of 1858 and the Ottoman attempts to settle the desert, all of which played a particular role in the state making process. In this latter piece of history, with regards to the sedentarization of nomadic tribes, we see um, a necessary part of the state-making process develop, and, an important, and it was important for Ottoman survival at the time. It was largely a reaction to economic and political pressures placed on the Ottoman Empire from outside, where the Ottoman Empire needed to extend and embed its influence over these territories and over these communities. Um, asserting sovereignty in a manner that replicated or mimicked um, the way that sovereignty would be established in the European state system. Here, um, in addition to that, the Ottoman Empire was able to engage in new forms of extraction over these new communities brought into the empire itself. 
So as the book outlines the practices of racialization tied to a civilizing project that disrupted customary political and social relations within the Syrian provinces was not benign. The social and political alienation that was caused led to instances of violent resistance. So while the Aleppo uprising of 1850 and the Damascus massacre of 1860 are often not discussed as instances of resistance, this fails to see the real political and economic disparities that were developing from increased European interference that privileged Christian communities above others. Indeed, these were mere precursors to other revolts led by Faisal in 1918 and um, later the Druze in 1925. The consequence of these instances of violent resistance, however, emerge in the narration of these histories where resistance is actually removed um, or the notion of resistance is actually removed and violence is considered a result of a civilizational deficiency and a civilizational failure that is evident in the unwillingness to engage in institutions and structures of modern statehood that were being applied. Separately, we also see other um, aspects of resistance um, through the development of national identities. However, I argue that in these instances, the nationalisms that developed made use of the language and structures of modernity and sought to mobilize national identities as a means to push against foreign interference and as a means to carve out um, a space for statehood. Initially, this was seen in the young Ottomans, with the young Ottomans, and it was later picked up by the young Turks, the Arab nationalists and the Syrian nationalists. In these cases, what emerges is that with um, the development of these national identities came the civilizational notions of difference. For example, the young Turks attempted to Turkify the Arab populations to bring them into modernity. And in response, the Arab nationalists argued that the Turks were racially and civilizationally inferior and were prone to violence and authoritarianism. Here we see how these notions of race and civilization become embedded in the identitarian politics of future states as well. The final substantive chapter of the book considers how European interests in the region relied on the application of a standard of civilization to engage in imperial and colonial governance, how notions of civilization facilitated the development of European relations with domestic communities that bypassed the Ottoman Empire and provided a means to engage in forms of economic extraction, political exploitation, and effectively place pressure on the Ottoman Empire to extend and continue influence beyond independence. So in conclusion, the book asks to rethink, to, to rethink statehood in the post-colonial world and to separate the modern state from its abstracted conceptions based on European experiences of statehood and state formation. It asks that we think about the racial civilizational logics of state-making in the post-colonial world and how the state has been produced in the image of these logics which are not necessarily abstract. Thank you. Many thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to remind everyone that if you have questions, please write them in the Q&A box and we'll address them shortly. Um, Sharidi, um, would you like to start? Yes, thank you so much for inviting me to share some thoughts with you on what is a very exciting uh, intellectual contribution and thank you and congratulations, Andrew, for the uh, accomplishment. Some of you might know that I was with Andrew in Cairo during the period he was writing this book and his scholarly focus and his drive has often put me 
to shame. Um, so I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I've got a few thoughts to share on this text with you, but I should caveat this by saying that I'm speaking to you now as a political scientist, but as a very bad political scientist. In fact, I think the field of political science and international relations would rather that I not identify myself as one of its members because of the interdisciplinary nature of my work, where we interlace the frameworks of other fields in our research, and because of the focus on the practical and community-driven scholarship um, uh, that, that we uh, are taking as a younger generation of uh, political scientists. And perhaps most vividly, because I, like Andrew, have um, also a more than healthy distaste and distrust of the state and of state-centric approaches, methodologies, concepts, understandings of human societies and the lived experiences of people. And I think this skepticism is what alienates us uh, as young scholars from the field. And it has also made the field unable to account for political changes and the social demands and movements of our generation in the Middle East, in our region. So in many ways, for me, the strength of the text lays in finally outlining something intellectually that many scholars in the field like myself have felt and have been confronted with in the discipline of political science when writing about societies in the Middle East that we didn't have so clearly laid out, I think, until this moment. So when Andrew says in the text that the modern state is in its essence part of a legacy of a standard of civilization in state building and development, and then carries with it a practical and intellectual coloniality regarding statehood. This contention helps us as scholars of the Middle East understand why the state is so limited, conceptually, intellectually, politically, as a frame for understanding the developments in our region. But it's not only that it's limited, because when we take the analysis further, and when we understand the modern state as created in the eye of Europe, where as, as is written in the text, Western Europe and the rest of the world were codified in binary and hierarchical relations, where they produced benchmarks of development, benchmarks of existence that became exclusively European products. Here we begin to understand the state as not only limited as a lens of analysis, but even damaging that it actually reproduces specific historical experiences that are deeply dependent on racial hierarchy. So as scholars, when we adopt them in this way, we are, in, we are doing damage, we are reproducing racial hierarchies. And I think that implication is also uh, greater uh, one to, to consider. The post-colonial state that is pointed to in the text as a product of the standard of civilization is an ongoing product of racial categories and violences, all of which then means that the state itself is a racist concept. It's rooted in a racist starting point. And I think this contention that's so effectively outlined in the text is the basis upon which uh, thinkers or scholars like myself uh, and our colleagues begin their thinking. But whereas when we understand this dynamic, it might push some of us or tempt us to drop the concept of the state completely, Andrew in the text is perhaps more generous because he instead pushes forward the need for the discipline 
of political science and international relations and development studies to instead reconceptualize the state. So we don't need to drop it, but we reconceptualize it. And I want to take it seriously. And I want to apply this, this sort of invitation in the text to reconceptualize the state, uh, both to my own work in Palestine, as well as I think the historical moment that we are finding ourselves in the global pandemic. And what we've seen with the trajectory of state building during the pandemic is exactly not the disappearance of the state, right? Is that in the, in the Middle East uh, specifically, but also in the world, that the state did not disappear. It became even more present in our lives, lockdowns, rules around movements, multiplication of borders, tanks on the streets, curfews. And with all of these steps, the racist underpinnings of the state emerged. They emerged not only within states where racialized communities of color suffered the brunt, specifically women suffered the brunt, but also among states where we saw this exactly this civilizational hierarchy activated. French doctors wanting to send vaccines to be experimented in African nations, Israeli doctors sending vaccines to India for testing, not to mention the rise of a vaccine apartheid globally where you have layered exclusions becoming even more clear. So in this historical moment, the state as a unit of analysis remains relevant for understanding how racism works, right? The state helps us understand how racism functions in the discipline uh, and its racist underpinnings become all the more clear and transparent. But what also is revealed in this global moment is that as the state appears, uh, it also appears as an incredibly weak and insecure creature. And I think in this moment, the experience in Palestine becomes very useful because what we've seen in the past month in places like occupied Gaza, Silwan, Umm al-Fahim, Lid, Bethlehem, Al-Khalil or Hebron, and what we've seen in refugee camps in Palestine and the surrounding Arab nations were community-based and community-driven uh, support systems for the distribution of food, health supplies, communication and protection. And so non-state societies were able to organize much better where you can walk into the Arab Women's Union in Beit Sahur and have direct and free access to the neighborhood oxygen tanks. Whereas in the borough of Hackney in London where I was sta staying at the time, people were fighting over basic supplies, growing depressed in their extreme sort of neoliberal isolation. So the weakness and the hypocrisy of the state became apparent in this moment when we saw citizenship being diluted, we saw social contracts being neglected, people thinking that they had a protection from the state that suddenly became violated or suspended, um, not always having the ability to enter and exit as a citizen. So th these, these contracts and these understandings, uh, myths of the state became increasingly torn, questioned or violated. And they did this according to racist logics, racist logics of exclusion. And so I'm, I'm ending soon, but I'll just, I'll just say, what does this mean then? What does it mean that we now understand the racist and civilizational underpinnings of the state and how they play out specifically, I think, in the Middle East? And I think again here, I will bring us back to Palestine, which is really my, my starting point, given my own, my own research. I think the recent events in Palestine push us increasingly in this direction of doing research and of thinking about human societies and, and struggle. The struggle in Palestine today is now not limited within a state framework. We have refugees, residents, citizens mobilizing along the same lines in ways that they haven't done in the past. 
making claims that go beyond the state, beyond the government, beyond what state representatives can provide, and acknowledging the importance of, of adopting multifaceted forms of both creative resistance and violent resistance. So violent resistance becomes as part and parcel to confronting the racism of the state as creative resistance does. And importantly, of mobilizing multiple fora for struggle. So it's not only the state venues for, for like legal forums that become important, but because of the standards of civilization within which the modern state is based, because of these colonial legacies, legal forums are just one. Parliaments are just one medium. We have st the streets, the gallery, the university. These become spaces also of resistance. And importantly also that the principles that are looked for are not so much self-determination according to a state framework, but dignity, acknowledgement, historical justice, and perhaps most important, decolonization. So I think in this, the text in, in revealing the underpinnings of the state, it points to the importance of decolonization, both as a method and as a framework for understanding politics in our historical present. And this would prevent us from falling into the trap that Andrew has pointed to in the text, where national resistances and decolonial ones have in the past adopted state-centric frameworks and then reproduced those standards of civilization. But instead, this text and the disruption of the state as an abstract concept becomes a reminder to rethink of decolonization itself, to rethink of it as a lifelong practice that goes beyond state modes and the organization of life. So I will stop there and thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Shiridi. Uh, May, please go ahead. Thank you, Jeanne, and thank you everyone for organizing this. Uh, so first, congratulations again, Andrew, for uh, your excellent new book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I'm really, really glad to be here to think collectively uh, through the book with, with you and Shirede and everybody else. So uh, let me share my few thoughts uh, as I was reading the book. So, so the book, looks at the state historically, uh, showing the problematics that have arisen from taking the modern state in Europe as, as the book says, the pinnacle of progress and also civilization. And to achieve this Euro European standard of civilization or even reach proximity to it entailed a structural mimicking of European state institutions, norms, notions of property and ownership, as well as legal systems. The book asks, two important questions that I think are both historically and theoretically significant. Specifically, Andrew asks, how did the state as a standard of civilization in the 19th century continue to be re-articulated in contemporary global politics? Second, he asks whether the post-colonial state can ever be reconceptualized um, as a separate entity from dominant notions of modern statehood, and whether this is a worthwhile exercise in the first place. Through um, engaging with these questions, the book takes history seriously. And while interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity is uh, important, especially when you're looking at such a central entity in, in global politics as the state, the turn to history here is political because it deliberately makes the important argument that structures of oppression and exploitation have been historically co-constituted 
and continue to mutate in different ways across time and space. By historicizing, this, the, the, by historicizing the state in Syria and Lebanon, the book stands in line with other critical scholarship that reject the essentialization of the Middle East as a place of violence, war, and sectarianism, as if somehow they appeared from thin air. Indeed, as Osama Mahdisi argues, we should dispute the view that the Arab world is some kind of, and I quote, a pathological place consumed by the disease of sectarianism, close quote. And this pathology applies not only to the disease of sectarianism, but also, as I mentioned, war, violence, and fanaticism. In fact, all forms of resistance against the colonizers were seen through the lens of this, of this pathological place of barbarity. Writing against the narrative that essentializes the colonized as predisposed to barbarity and fanaticism, Andrew presents a complex analysis that shows how the populations in the Syrian provinces resisted their alienation and oppression with the use of violence. In one of his chapters, and it's my personal favorite, uh, he shows how throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century, the populations of the Syrian provinces crafted new forms of resistance. And importantly, the book reads beyond simplistic notions of the violent East. As de la Tola puts it, and I quote, violence is not absent from politics conceptually or practically, nor is politics absent from violence. And if we are to understand politics and the production of power, we must understand the multiple ways violence is enacted. This Fanonian analysis sheds light on these acts of resistance that could only be articulated as an earlier wave of anti-colonial struggle against the colonial system with its civilizational discourses and its exploitation. Indeed, it was an early wave of refusal. Andrew juxtaposes the different forms of resistance that took place in the Syrian provinces to an event like the French Revolution, for example, perceived generally as a good form of resistance that went hand in hand with the good forms of colonial governance. Even in such a momentous event, such as the storming of the Bastille, the standard of civilization is weaved into the texture of the analysis, whereby the French Revolution becomes universal history, whereas anti-colonial revolts, revolts in the Arab world become specific, particular, fanatic. And it's perhaps here that I want to think collectively about two questions that came to me out of the book. One is the following. So first, the, the book brilliantly shows how the standards of civilization produced a racial hierarchy embedded within the form of the state, as well as in international relations and in international law. In fact, the mandate system that also Andrew talks about in the book of the League of Nations officially legalized the standard of civilization, whereby the territories colonized by the defeated empires in World War I would be categorized according to their level of civilization through a gradation of sovereignty. And of course, as we know, the Ottoman provinces were lucky enough to get grade A uh, mandate. Um, but this process of racialization cannot be adequately understood without also thinking about the history of capitalism in the colonies. And importantly, how did capitalism rely on this racialization and how did it articulate itself differently in the colonies? And also, how do we understand the class dynamics as they mapped into this racial hierarchy? Relatedly, and thinking also again with Fanon, how do we have a critique of empire that is both self-conscious of other forms of dispossession at home, even if those forms are also historical and constituted in and through the colonial encounter? 
In other words, can the critique of empire also be an internal critique of local forms of allegiances, inequalities, class disparities, or as Fanon would put it, how to remove the white masks, so to speak, especially as we are thinking about the post-colonial state today. And this question is precisely to open the sphere for imagining new forms of resistance to the enduring nation state with all the violence embedded within it. As we look at the Middle East today, uh, and as people continue to resist and refuse their wretchedness in different, in different places, obviously most recently in Palestine, but also in Lebanon and, and uh, Syria and the rest of the Middle East. So how can we think about how can we think about this moment as as a as another way another wave of resistance precisely to the enduring uh, violence of the nation of the modern nation state let me leave it here and i really look forward to the, the discussion and thanks again for the invitation thank you very much mai and thanks to all the speakers um andrew would you like to take um the first question for now or would you like to make any comments before we start with the questions Yeah, so I'll, I'll actually, if you don't mind, I'll respond to May and then um, jump in with the questions. So um, May, you ask, um, how did capitalism rely on kind of racial dynamics, um, particularly with regards to the Ottoman Empire? Um, and there are, there are some really interesting um, aspects that kind of play out that I didn't get a chance to write about in, in the book. Um, but from my research, um, looking at how, uh, despite, for example, the French making this allegiance with the Maronite Catholics um, in, in what would then become Lebanon, um, despite this allegiance, um, the French um, asked, and, and this might not necessarily be um, so much with regards to capitalism, I guess, but more about kind of exploitation and what was happening. Um, but the French asked that, you know, uh, if, if they could serve to help fight in, um, in, in uh, the First World War. And there were indeed a number of Maronite Catholics that did um, go across um, the Mediterranean to France to, to fight with the French, but they were required to pay for their own ticket there. And should they survive their own ticket back? Um, so these these are kind of really interesting, I think, dynamics of um, the kind of the enduring racial hierarchies that were deployed at the time. I mean, speaking about um, kind of the, the issues around capitalism, this is something that we do see out later, see later again with regards to um, the kind of exploitation of um, silk production in Mount Lebanon by the French and by kind of European states more broadly. We also see this with regards to um, the movement of grain and food, foodstuffs. Um, and we also um, see this uh, in relation to um, the, the, uh, the kind of um, attempt or, or the kind of strategy um, that was developed um, with regards to the construction of Greater Lebanon and and the necessity to control those port cities of Beirut, of Tripoli, of Saida, um, and to um, maintain control of those uh, port cities, but also using that essentially as a buffer to control the interior of Syria, 
right? So all of this kind of has, ha has kind of these capitalist dynamics that are playing out, um, not necessarily the focus, but, um, you know, they are there. Um, I think turning the critique of empire inwards is really important and really interesting. Um, it's something that I did struggle with when writing this book because the Ottoman Empire is an imperfect empire. There is a lot of internal violence that is conducted. Um, there's no kind of great system of governance um, that, that emerges. Um, I mean, we, we spoke about this before, even the Millet system is problematic, right? In terms of forcing communities to pay a head tax for their, for their livelihoods. Um, and it's, it's a difficult comparison to make because you don't want to, um, you don't, you don't want to exonerate one and, and kind of blame the other. Um, but I do think that, you know, given given the time period and and the kind of mobility of politics in the ottoman empire as well as um in europe right we can um we we should be historicizing these dynamics and looking at these not as one being better than the other in terms of a hierarchy but um thinking about the way that these are socially constitutive um how um, these are socially embedded and then thinking about, well, what happens when um, those, uh, those systems are disrupted, right? And what happens to society when those systems are disrupted? Um, so um, in that, you know, in, the, in those kinds of disruptions, we do see a lot of resistance. And this is coming to your third question. Um, and I think, you know, we should be reading resistance into more than just uprisings. Um, I think we should be thinking about um, resistance in, in multiple forms. Um, and even in the most kind of subtle ways, resistance exists. Um, and, and I think those are kind of aspects that we should be highlighting more often. Um, however, the language of resistance is always changing as well. And I think this plays into class dynamics as well. Um, thinking about, you know, the, the kind of instances of nationalist resistance versus the instances of violent resistance that I talk about in the book um, with regards to kind of the development of a national resistance or, or an ideology of nationalism that is then mobilized as a resistant force. Um, we're talking about primarily educated individuals who have traveled, who um, uh, are literate, who, who are middle or upper middle class at this during this period, um, right? So there's a particular kind of privilege there um, that, that enables them to engage in these kinds of concepts and ideas of modernity that perhaps um, the populations engaged in violent resistance not, didn't necessarily have um, or, or were not able to speak in that language. Um, and so there is a kind of class issue with regards to um, the way that resistance is mobilized, but also then the way that resistance is talked about, right? Um, and, and where we place legitimacy um, with regards to the form of resistance that's being undertaken. 
Thank you, Andrew. Um, let's start with the questions, please. Um, so the first one is, it feels reductionist counterposing the Turkish state to the European state, which you describe with clearly defined traits, such as centralization in your introduction. What is the analytical value of such approach, which does not acknowledge variations in state models within European nations? And the second part of this um, question is, would it not be more accurate to talk about Britain or specific countries when comparing models? So I do focus um, on British, uh, French, and even um, to a certain extent, Russian um, involvement in the Ottoman Empire here. Um, and how at that time they were considered, or at the time that I'm kind of um, uh, writing about, um, they were considered kind of the leaders, the, the kind of European powers, um, and how those, uh, the, the, their particular kind of notions of statehood um, were exported. Um, I do, I take, I take, um, I take your uh, criticism of saying the European state as reductionist because there was difference and there continues to be difference between um, European states. But looking at kind of the greater scheme of things, um, you know, when we, when, when we do engage in this kind of abstraction, this conceptualization of statehood, it's often the European state um, at, that, is, that is kind of positioned um, as a model for others to follow. Um, in relation, um, when we talk about the majority world, right, there's there's kind of a hierarchy that develops then. Um, so it's really that that I'm pointing out, um, not not necessarily pointing out kind of um, the the kind of broader differences or or more specific rather differences within uh, European statehood. Thank you, Andrew. And the second question: How does one even begin? to reconceptualize a construct as tangible and thoroughly institutionalized as the state? And what are the implications of potentially reconceptualizing the state on national identity and general human organization? So um, this is, this is a, I think, a really interesting question, right? Because um, the state, as, as I kind of explain in the book, but also as, as uh, Dr. Malavi um, stated, it's, it's there, right? It exists. It's something that we do have to deal with. Um, so reconceptualizing it doesn't necessarily mean doing away with it, but thinking about um, the way that the state reproduces a number of very problematic, very violent um, uh, Kind of practices and how those are historically embedded, um, how how we don't necessarily discuss those histories or discuss how those history how those kind of practices become embedded throughout history. Um, so reconceptualizing the state here, I think, um, is is kind of pointing out the way that. Um, the state is not just one thing, right? It's not a monolith. Um, that when we talk about statehood, we do need to be more specific. We need to be more grounded. We need to do away with this abstraction that becomes problematic as, as the first question um, poses, right? With regards to this kind of reductionist approach to the European state. Um, 
And in doing that, um, you know, what we then kind of find is the very, the, the, the kind of nuance of history, um, the uh, way that a lot of, um, a lot of kind of the language and, and narratives that we use to discuss concepts and theories around statehood um, reproduce um, a lot of the kind of problems that we find. Um, so thinking about race, but we can also think about violence with regards to um, authoritarianism, right? And kind of if we historicize authoritarianism to a colonial period, you know, are there, are there connections there that we can draw from? Um, and so um, thinking about the implications of this, um, I think that it potentially disrupts a lot of international relations theory, a lot of political science theory, a lot of development studies theory um, that forces us to essentially um, take a broader and more in-depth view of what we are studying, what we are talking about, um, and, and potentially, um, you know, does away with this kind of generalization. Thank you, Andrew. And um, could you please elaborate with some specific examples of how you see racism play out in post-colonial state institutions in Lebanon and Syria? Yeah, so in, um, in Lebanon, for example, we see racism play out in kind of sectarian dynamics. Um, we often talk about sectarianism as something that is um, socially and historically embedded in Lebanon. Um, I would argue that while there is an element of sectarianism that can be traced, you know, again, to the Millet system, that can be traced um, to a certain degree to kind of Druze Maronite relations in, in um, Mount Lebanon, um, the um, constructed and, and kind of character, the constructed characteristics of sectarianism as they are applied to each sect has been transformed into kind of these, um, into these kind of racist frameworks um, where, um, you know, certain sects may produce certain kinds of characteristics, social characteristics, or, or, or be considered as um, economically inferior or, or politically more developed. Um, and here we do see kind of race play out. We also see race play out with regards to the development of nationalisms. Um, we see that with regards to the Syrian nationalism and how that has been reproduced over time. Um, particularly with regards to Assyrian nationalism that sees itself as being superior to other, uh, to other Arab nationalisms. Um, we see that with regards to Lebanese nationalism and the fight over Lebanese nationalism. What does it mean to be a Lebanese national? Um, we see that play out also in, in interstate relations, right? Between the Lebanese and the Palestinians um, where Palestinians still to this day don't have necessary rights to citizenship, are blocked from certain professions in Lebanon, despite having lived in Lebanon for so long. Um, we see that also with regards to the treatment of Syrian refugees in Lebanon as well. Um, so there's a number of ways that kind of racist dynamics play out in the state. 
um, and, and get played out in governance as well. Perfect, thank you. And um, if the state is such a flawed, dysfunctional, race-based concept, then how do we understand the many contemporary aspirations um, towards statehood in the region and or aspiration towards a civic, less dysfunctional state example in Lebanon? That's, that's, a, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that, you know, if, if we're talking about, um, you know, the way that the state has taken shape and, and, and if we're out, if we're going to analyze it within um, this framing of, of race and racism historically, um, then we see how, for example, in Iraq, um, the Kurds were treated as separate um, with regards to kind of a racial um, identifications and racial classifications. We see that as well in Turkey. Um, and so there is this aspiration of statehood that exists, but that aspiration of statehood, we need to question as well with regards to the concept of race and with how, how race is imbued in or embedded in, um, embedded in these kinds of ideas of independence and sovereignty um, that require kind of a space to be carved out for their safety. Um, in, in relation to um, aspects uh, or aspirations towards a civic and less dysfunctional state in Lebanon. Um, this is, this is uh, something that I've um, <laughs> tried to grapple with myself <laughs> in, in so many ways. Um, and the, I have many opinions on the state of Lebanon. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, some of them probably are, are popular and some of them are probably unpopular with, with certain um, individuals and certain ideologies. Um, I think, you know, when, when we think about um, what Lebanon is and, and what Lebanon should be, um, we open up that Pandora's box again. Um, and there have been instances where, um, where um, there has been mobility to kind of um, move away from what Lebanon has historically represented in kind of the post-Civil War period. Um, but also, are we talking then about um, governance versus statehood, right? Um, and I think that is an important kind of um, distinction to be made, uh, although they're connected, um, there have been kind of going back to um, going back to this issue. There have been instances where, especially you know, following um, the the port blast, where the state has been or the the government has been completely bypassed. Um, we see that with. Um, various kinds of NGO and civil society organizations. Um, we saw that with Impact Lebanon, we saw that with Beit al-Badaka, we saw that with Badayati, all of these groups who actively um, functioned in ways where the state refused or could not, um, to the point where um, these organizations were asking other states globally um, to funnel 
aid directly to these civil society organizations and bypass the government. Um, and there's an effort there to kind of, I think, redefine who and, and who the state is for. But I do question then, does that actually lead to a transformation when it comes to dealing with or, or kind of um, engaging with um, Palestinian refugees or Syrian refugees or even um, domestic workers, um, right? Where, where these kinds of institutions and, and uh, uh, structures of statehood that are very much embedded in kind of legal doctrine um, reproduce these kind of racist classifications. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I believe there aren't any more questions. Um, does anyone have any questions or any further comments from the audience or the speakers? Okay. And um, my own question to you, Andrew, what do you think of the protest movements in Lebanon? Do you see them as effective or as another kind of resistance um, should be examined? in order to reform the system or have some political transformation? I think there's some really interesting things happening with the protest movement. And I think um, we, need to, we need to see this movement as something that is enduring and also um, that didn't just develop you know, last year, it, was, it developed in 2015 um, with the garbage crisis. Um, and it's been something that's been building momentum. And I think it's, I, I have a very positive outlook on it. Um, I, I hope that it's only a matter of time before the, the system changes and um, the protesters get what they want. And it's a similar argument that I would make about Egypt, um, about Syria as well, that we need to see these protests and this, these wave, waves of protest um, as kind of building on each other constantly, um, that they're not, um, that they're not kind of uh, uh, um, that they're not kind of uh, in these only single instances, right? That they don't exist in these just kind of one-offs. That that they are learning from each other as they move along. Thank you, Andrew. Um, congratulations on your book. Um, thank you, Sharidi, and thank you, May. Um, thank you to the Middle East Center and thank you to our uh, audience who joined us today. Thank you everyone for your time and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Bye.